chapter 2. So Deuteronomy chapter 2, and if you need a Bible, just lift up your hand and Stu will bring a Bible to you so that you can follow along with us in our study tonight as we go line upon line through the Bible. Tonight we are in the book of Deuteronomy. The book of Deuteronomy consists of three sermons that were given by Moses during the last month of his life. The theme of all three sermons is the same. The theme of all three is obedience. The importance of walking in obedience to God. However, they contain varying subject matter between the three. The first of the three is given to us in chapters 1 through 4 of the book. And in chapters 1 through 4, Moses basically rehearses their history from the time of leaving Mount Sinai until they come to the borders of the promised land. So chapters 1 through 4 is rehearsing their history up to that point, just that 38 years between leaving Sinai and coming to the border of the promised land across from Jericho where they would go in. The second sermon is the long one. It's the Nick sermon. The second sermon is from chapter 5 all the way to chapter 30. And the second one is a retelling of the law. Moses giving them again the rehashing of the things that he had already given to them in Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers, but in a much more concise and practical way that would be understood by the people. So the second sermon, the second section is the retelling of the law. And then the third sermon is from chapter 31 to 34. And that is simply a reminder of their destiny. As Moses basically signs off before going to heaven and sending them now into the promised land, into their destiny. He does that in those last uh, chapters. And so Three sermons given by Moses with the theme of obedience. And tonight we find ourselves in chapter 2 in the midst of Moses' first sermon. Now, last week we looked at, in chapter 1, their failure. He highlighted the fact that they failed to enter in to the promised land at the time that God was sending them in. And it cost them a whole generation. The whole generation of those that came out of Egypt didn't go into the promised land because they didn't believe God. And so their failure was because of disobedience that was because of unbelief. And so that was chapter 1. And tonight, as we go through chapters 2 and 3, we get two things basically in these chapters. Number one, what happened during the 38 years of wandering, and that takes up all of one verse. (laughs) And then the rest of it is two victories that Israel experienced prior to crossing into, uh, you know, crossing the Jordan into the land in the Battle of Jericho. So two victories that happened on the east side of the Jordan River. And if you are looking at the screen, I believe there's a map up on the screen that is very difficult to read, but you can at least see the layout of the land. And if you look at the, the larger 
uh, not the Mediterranean Sea, but the, uh, to the, your right of that, uh, you know, you'll see there the Dead Sea, which is the longer uh, vertical strip, and then, and then there's kind of a space above that, and then a, you'll see a little tiny body of water that looks more like a pond. That's the Sea of Galilee. And so you can kind of see, and then right between them, which I think the resolution doesn't allow you to see so much, would be the Jordan River. So if you draw a line right through those two bodies of water, that would be the Jordan. And, and the journey that chapters 2 and 3 highlight is the movement of the entire congregation from an area that is south of what you can see on the map up around the east side of those two bodies of water, up around the Dead Sea, uh, up into that area. So just kind of to put a visual on what you're hearing, the audio, so that you can kind of understand maybe a little bit more clearly. So chapter 2, verse 1, it says, Then we turned, and we took our journey into the wilderness by the way of the Red Sea, As the Lord spoke unto me, and we compassed Mount Seir many days, or what would be the land of Edom, or that area north of the Gulf of Aqaba, but south of the Dead Sea. It says they circled it for many days. And that is hyperbole, extreme exaggeration. If he was being specific, he would have said 13,680 days. Because it was 38 years that they wandered around in that region. And so that's all they have to show for that 38 years. They wandered around Mount Seir, around the mountain again and again and again. And if you weren't here last week, I would encourage you to pick up the audio or check it out online. Because we talked about how that applies in our lives. Another trip around the mountain, you know. So verse 2, it says, And the Lord spoke unto me saying, you have compassed or circled this mountain long enough. Turn you northward. It's time for you to stop wandering. It's time for you to stop having an aimless and purposeless existence. It's time for you to move into the thing that I've planned for you and destined for you to do. It's time for you to move northward. God speaks to Moses for the people. In verse 4, and command thou the people, saying, you now are to pass through the coast of your brethren, the children of Esau, which dwell in Seir, and they shall be afraid of you. Take ye good heed unto yourselves, therefore. And so God is saying, you are about to pass through the land, through the dwelling space of your brother Esau. Interesting. Esau was the twin brother of Jacob, who Jacob's name was changed to Israel, and then he fathered the 12 tribes that would ultimately become the nation of Israel. But Esau, the brother of Jacob, was not part of Israel. He was the seed of Abraham, but he was not the one that God chose through whom he would deal with to bring forth the word of God and ultimately the son of God. But yet God still says, he's your brother and don't mess with him. You're about to pass through. Now, Seir or Edom and his descendants ultimately became the Edomites. So when you're reading in your Old Testament and you read about the Edomites, 
Or you read about the conflicts that the children of Israel had with the Edomites throughout their existence. That's who the Edomites are. They are the descendants of Esau. And so he says, you're going to pass through their coasts and they're going to be afraid of you. And he says, so take heed to yourselves. In verse 5, and meddle not with them. For I will not give you of their land, no, not so much as a footbreadth, because I have given Mount Seir unto Esau for a possession. You shall buy meat of them for money that you may eat, and you shall also buy water of them for money that you may drink. For the Lord thy God hath blessed thee in all the works of thy hand. He knoweth thy walking through this great wilderness these 40 years. The Lord thy God has been with thee. Thou hast lacked nothing. And You know, it's interesting that in the middle of this dig that God is basically giving, saying, you know, you're going to see Esau and you're going to see their land and you're going to walk through. And, and yes, you've been wandering for these 38 years. But understand that I've been with you. I've never left you. I provided for you. I've blessed the works of your hands. And for all of these years, you have lacked nothing. And that's encouraging, isn't it? Especially for those of us that feel as though we've spent a bit of time in our lives wandering around the mountain. Kind of missing out, perhaps, on God's best. To know that even though there might be a season where we're not seeing what God ultimately has for us, it doesn't mean that he's not with us. He says, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. He's with them. He blessed the works of their hands. He knows they're walking through the wilderness and they lack nothing. Verse 8, he says, And when we passed by from our brethren, the children of Esau, which dwelt in Seir, through the way of the plain of Elath and from Ezion Geber, we turned then and passed by the way of the wilderness of Moab. So at this point, they come up underneath the bottom of the Dead Sea And they begin to turn northward up the eastern coastlands or the eastern lands uh, along the Dead Sea. So they're on the east side of the Jordan River at this point uh, as they're going. So verse 9, it says, And the Lord said unto me, Distress not the Moabites, neither contend with them in battle. For I will not give thee of their land for a possession, because I have given our unto the children of Lot. For a possession. Now Lot was the nephew of Abraham. When God called Abraham to leave Babylon and to go to the land of promise, the land of Canaan, the nephew of Abraham, Lot, went with him. And for a while, the two lived side by side. But there came a point where the congregation of Abraham and the herdsmen of Lot were too many and they began to contend with each other and so Abraham came to Lot and he said hey look we can't be together anymore so you choose if you want to go south I'll go north if you want to go east I'll go west you choose where you want to go and so Lot looked and he saw the plain of Sodom and Gomorrah and he saw that it was well watered a great place for cattle and he said I'm going to Sodom And Abraham said, good, I'll go to Hebron. And so Abraham goes to Hebron, Lot goes to Sodom, and you know the story. Sodom is judged, they're destroyed, and Lot ultimately leaves Sodom with his wife and with two of his daughters. 
and they go and they live in a mountain. And if you read the story of Lot, it's actually quite a sad story. It's a story of wasted potential. And Lot finds himself without a home. He finds himself kind of destitute later in life. And the story goes, scripturally, that on a, on a certain occasion, on two successive nights, his daughters got him drunk. And they both slept with their father. And both of them, you know, were with child. And the descendants of those two things became what, what the Bible calls the Moabites. And so these people that, that are here in this region on that southeastern area of the Dead Sea, it's the area of Moab, and it's the descendants of Lot. And they were perpetual enemies of Israel. There was constant war and contention between the two groups, and now they have to pass through their land. And so God says, you're going to pass through their coasts, but don't mess with them. I haven't given you that land. And so it says he's given them to Lot, and then in verse 10 it says, The Emims dwelt therein, that is in, in the land that became Moab, in times past, a people great and many and tall, as the Anakims, the giants, which were also accounted giants as the Anakims, but the Moabites call them Emims. The Horims also dwelt in Seir, before time, but the children of Esau succeeded them when they had destroyed them from before and dwelt in their stead as Israel did unto the land of his possession, which the Lord gave unto them. And so he says both the children of Lot and the children of Esau both had to contend with giants in obtaining the territory that was given to them by God. You can kind of begin to see where Moses is going with this as he talks to them about the sons of Lot that had land that dispossessed it of giants and the sons of Esau that had land that dispossessed it of giants and as he says there at the end of verse 12, as Israel did unto the land of his possession, which the Lord gave unto them. Interesting that Moses is saying this before it happened. They hadn't yet driven out anyone from their land. And yet, here God is saying that it's about to happen. So verse 13, now rise up, said I, and get you over the brook Zered. And we went over the brook Zered. And the space in which we came from Kadesh Barnea until we were come over the brook Zered was thirty and eight years until all the generation of the men of war were wasted out from among the host as the Lord sware unto them. For indeed the hand of the Lord was against them, against Israel, to destroy them from among the host until they were consumed. And so it came to pass when all the men of war were consumed and dead from among the people that the Lord spoke unto me saying, thou art to pass over through our the coast of Moab this day. So you recall from the last chapter, that generation that disobeyed, that didn't go in, that didn't listen to God and take the land, God said, you're going to wander until that whole generation age 20 and above, pass away. And so 38 years it took, but every one of the men of war in that generation passed away, and now God says, move on, move forward. And so verse 19, when you came 
nigh or near over against the children of Ammon, moving northward now. He says, distress them not, nor meddle with them, for I will not give thee of the land of the children of Ammon any possession, because I have given it unto the children of Lot for a possession. So not just the Moabites, the land of Moab, but also the land of the Ammonites belonged to Lot. It was given to Lot by God. And then verse 20, that also was accounted a land of giants. Giants dwelt therein in old time, and the Ammonites call them Zamzumims. I love that word, you know. A people great and many and tall as the Anakims. But the Lord destroyed them before them, and they succeeded them and dwelt in their stead or in their place. As he did to the children of Esau, which dwelt in Seir, when he destroyed the Orems which bef- uh, from before them, and they succeeded them and dwelt in their stead or in their place even unto this day. And the Avims which dwelt in Hazarim, even unto Azah, the Kaphtarims, which came forth out of Kaphtar, destroyed them and dwelt in their stead. And so God recounts through Moses to the people the history of their journeyings from Mount Seir in their years of wandering, up then through the coasts of Moab, and uh, sorry, sorry, first Esau, Seir, then through Moab, and then through Ammon. And in all three cases, God said, you're to pass through their land, buying water for drink, food, you know, to eat, but you're not to meddle with them, just pass through their land. And an interesting thing that God has them observe on their way as they're going up through there. And there's a few things in in this chunk of verses that I think are worthy of our consideration as we just listen to what God has to say. And the first of, of those is this, is that God is the one that appoints world borders and portions to people. That God is the one that sets those things in their place and establishes those boundaries. That's his will and what he does. He he tells Israel, you're not to mess with Esau. And you're not to mess with Lot. And you're not to mess with Ammon. Because I have given them those lands. It's theirs. I establish those borders. And so if the land of Seir belongs to Esau... And the land of Moab and Ammon belong to Lot, then it stands to reason that the land that God gives to Israel belongs to who? Israel. That's right. They didn't have permission to just go and take whatever they wanted, but God had established borders that they would inhabit. And God honored the promise in the borders that he gave to Esau and to Lot and to Ammon. And God also is telling them that he's going to honor the borders in the portion that he has given to them. It bothers me when I hear our president, the president of the United States, the president of the nation in the world that stands with Israel and says to him that he doesn't know what's best for his own people, but that he should concede land to people that God has not given that area to. And that they shouldn't develop and build 
you know, property on land that they own, that was given to them by God, that's established in their borders. We're on a slippery slope as a nation. God gave it to Israel, it's Israel's. And God gave us a commission that we're to stand with Israel. And if we, as a country that has already turned our back on God, if we turn our back on Israel, that'll be a landslide of judgment that will fall upon us. We will cease to exist faster than we can even know what hit us. And the challenge for you and I as the church is to not get swept up in the wave of anti-Semitism that is coming across the whole world. You and I are called to stand with Israel. Though the whole world turns against them, though we be chided, though we be mocked, though we be hated for our position, we're to stand with them. God said to Abraham when he called him, he said, I will bless those that bless you and I will curse those that curse you. And that promise is still true to this day. And it's true for you and I as we would make our decision and take our stand with God's people, Israel. We wouldn't be here tonight studying the word of God. If it wasn't for Israel, we owe them for that. We wouldn't have the Savior brought into the world in the way that God brought the Savior into the world if it wasn't for Israel. And we're called to stand with Israel. It's not just world borders, though, that God is in control of. He's in control of the portion that he assigns not just to nations, but also to individuals, to people, to you and I. He is sovereign over that which he has appointed to each person, what he's given. I've discovered at the ripe old age of mid-30s, you know, where I am right now, in all of my uh, wisdom that I've attained over the years, this is what I've observed in my life so far and in the lives of others, is that it doesn't matter what stage of life you're in, there's always something to worry about. (laughs) I remember, I remember when I first got saved and I was just 19 years old and I, I did, I barely knew my right hand from my left, you know, and, and I remember all of the things that I worried about in those days. I thought, you know, what am I going to do with my life? I, I don't really have any skills. I don't have, I'm not from money. You know, I don't have those natural advantages that some people have. Uh, what am I going to do with my life? And I remember that was a real source of stress for me how am i going to work things out who am i going to marry am am i going to get a good wife am i going to get any wife you know what's going to happen and 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 what's how's that going to work out And, and you know then you know life begins and you have a wife and you get a job but then there's something to worry about well am i going to have kids or now i have kids how do i raise kids you know, I don't know what I'm doing, you know, and I still don't know what I'm, what's going on. And, and there's always something, no matter what stage of life you're in, there's something to worry about. First, it's the wife, and then it's the job, but then it's the career and the advancement, and then it's the kids and what's going to happen, and then it's a house. Where are we going to live? And then it's how are we going to pay for the house that we live in? And then you go a little bit further, and you start to think about future things. Well, what am I going to do for retirement? Am I going to be able to retire? Where will I retire? Will I have anything when I retire? And then you start thinking about country. You know, you think, wow, you know, I never really paid attention to this politics thing, but there's something here to this, and look where we're going, and you start to worry about that. And then you start worrying about your kids. What are they going to do? Where are they going to go to school? How are we going to pay for their education? And then, you know, and then you, and, and it's just on and on. Then health. 
How am I going to stay healthy? What if I get sick? And no matter what stage of life you're in, there's always something to worry about. But for you and I, it should help us to know that God is sovereign over the portion that he has given to each one of us. He's faithful. Think about it. God spoke to Abraham 400 years before Israel would have the borders of Israel. And he said, I have already mapped out what I'm going to give you. It's already done. It's in my mind. It's settled hundreds of years before it ever happened. Hundreds of years before those that will inhabit it even exist. And so it's true for you and for me. He knows you. He knows me. The Bible says that his thoughts towards us are more in number than the sand that's on the seashore. That he knows how many hairs are on our head and not one of them falls to the ground without him knowing it. And he says, I know the thoughts that I think towards you, saith the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil to give you a future and a hope or to bring you to an expected end. And he knows exactly what he's doing in your life and mine. He knows us better than we know ourselves. He'll care for us better than we'll care for ourselves. And he will do better for us than we would be able to do for ourselves. And what we're called to do is rest and trust and obey and walk with him. So God is sovereign over portions and borders for nations, but also for individuals. The second thing I find interesting in these verses that we just read is that it was important to God that his people see and perceive other nations that he calls their brethren, other nations secure and established in their possessions. God wanted them to see that. He wanted them to walk through Seir and then Moab and then Ammon. And he wanted them to see and perceive that, hey, These people are not even chosen like we are. These people didn't walk through the Red Sea on dry ground. These people are just people. In fact, they're godless people for the most part. And yet God gave them his word that he was going to give them a portion. And they went into an area and they had to fight against giants And they had to dispossess a a, a race that was godless from before them. And God gave them the land. And here they are now. They're there in their land. I think it's a common thing among Christians, uh, among people, but it, it happens to Christians too, is that we can fall into the mindset that God doesn't want to help us. He'll help them. He'll help Pastor Joe. He'll help, you know, brother james he'll help sister whoever you know but but he doesn't want to help me he's interested in them but i don't count i'm kind of on the outside he doesn't want to do for me what i'm hoping he'll do or what i'm thinking he might or what he did for them not true and that's what god wanted them to see in this that he was for them that he was going to help them and that as he did it for them he would do it for israel for his people and that that was uh you know, basically God's plan for their life. You know, I remember there was a time in my life where I was going through somewhat of a drought. There was kind of a wilderness experience. And I was waiting on the Lord for what, what, what's going to happen with my life? 
you know, I seem to have no direction. And, and, and Lord, what are you doing? And I was married at the time and uh, might have had Hosanna already. So there's a growing family and there's uncertainty and, and, and didn't really know. And I remember one night I was kind of complaining to my wife, as sometimes husbands like to do, you know. And Georgia looked at me, and she's, she's such a good encourager. And she just said, she said, you know, Nick, look at the Bible. She said, look at what God did for all of, of the, 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 the men of old. Look what he did for Joseph, who was hopeless, who didn't know where his life was going. Look what he did for David. Look what he did for Paul, wandering around the Arabian desert for a few years. Look how God came through. In every instance, you can see God coming through for each one of his people. And me being the optimistic, glasses half full type of guy that I am, I looked at her and I said, I ain't no David. And I ain't no Joseph. And I'm not Paul. I understand why God came through for them and how God came through for them. But why would he come through for me? And then I remember, not too long after that, I was reading one morning, going through devotions, and I was reading Psalm chapter 22. And Psalm 22 is a famous psalm. It's the one that begins with, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's what Christ quoted on the cross. And it was written by David, but David wasn't speaking for Christ. He was speaking for himself. He was going through that emotion. God, you've forsaken me. And he spends two or three verses complaining about how God wasn't moving in his life. How God had forsaken him. How God was not helping him. That he was destitute. That he was nothing. And then he talks to himself a little bit. And you can read it. And he says says these words. He says, our fathers trusted in you. They trusted in you. And you delivered them. Joseph. Gideon. Moses. Noah. Our fathers, they believed in you. And you delivered them. But then David says this. He says, but I'm a worm and not even a man. He basically said, but you're not going to do it for me. You did it for them, and that makes sense. I understand why you helped Noah. I understand why you helped, you know, Abraham, but you're not going to help me. And how many times do you and I fall into the same trap? We see God coming through for people around us. We watch as God blesses, helps, establishes, prospers those around us but then we look at our own situation and we see the obstacles that we face the difficulties that are before us and we say but it's not going to happen for me it's not going to happen listen you need to believe god trust him because as he did for those around you certainly he will do for you and for me it's his promise it's our portion you say well if you could see the obstacles that i was facing if you could see the walls and the mountains and the, and the things that are keeping me back, then you wouldn't be so quick to say, just trust in God. Well, that's the third thing that we observe through the wanderings in verses 1 through 23, and that is this, is that God has a long history of dispossessing giants. God has a long history of dispossessing giants. For the sons of Esau, it was the Avims, and the Horims, and the Kaftarims, and I have no idea what those things are, but I wouldn't want to meet one in a dark alley at night. For the sons of uh, Lot, it was the Emims, and the Horims, and the 
Zam, zoom him, you know. I feel like I'm listening to one of my kids, uh, you know, story tapes or something. But God dispossessed the giants in the face of those that weren't even called. And how much more is God going to do it for those whom he has called? There is no giant in the life of any nation, whether it be Israel in the text, whether it be in your life and in mine. There is no giant. There is no obstacle. There is no contention that is so great that God cannot remove it out of the way. There's no addiction that's too powerful that God can't give you victory over. There's no issue in your life, whether it be of pride, or whether it be of anger, or whether it be of lust, or whether it be of envy, or whether it be of anger and wrath and clamor and all. There is nothing that God cannot dispossess. And he wanted his people to recognize and perceive that as they moved towards the place where they would begin to inherit their destiny, is that nothing is too hard for God. And that's true for them, and it's true for us. He dispossesses giants. Well, in verse 24, the battle begins. It says, rise ye up, take your journey, and pass over the river Arnon. Behold, I have given into thine hand Sihon the Amorite, king of Heshbon, and his land. Begin to possess it and contend with him in battle. This day will I begin to put the dread of thee and the fear of thee upon the nations that are under the whole heaven, who shall hear report of thee and shall tremble and be in anguish because of thee. And I sent messengers out of the wilderness of Kedemoth unto Sihon, king of Heshbon, with words of peace, saying, Let me pass through thy land. I will go along by the highway. I will neither turn unto the right hand nor to the left. You shall sell me meat for money that I may eat and give me water for money that I may drink. Only I will pass through on my feet. And then he gives them a resume in verse 29. As the children of Esau, which dwell in Seir, and the Moabites, which dwell in Ar, did unto me, until I shall pass over Jordan into the land which the Lord our God giveth us. So he sends the same message to Sihon that he sent to Esau and then also to Lot and the children of Ammon. But he's met with a different response than what he received from the others. Verse 30, it says, But Sihon, king of Heshbon, would not let us pass by him, for the Lord thy God hardened his spirit and made his heart obstinate that he might deliver him unto thy hand as appeareth this day. You say, now wait a minute here. They go to the sons of Esau and the sons of Lot and the sons of Ammon and they have no problem. It's a peaceable message. We're passing through. Sell us Food, sell us water, and we won't harm you. It's an, it's an easy message. But now we come to this guy, and it tells us that God hardened his heart and made him obstinate so that he might deliver him into the hand of the children of Israel. What gives here? Is God interfering in the free will of this man, Sihon? Is God influencing a decision that this guy is making to accomplish his own ends? The answer is no. The Bible doesn't tell us that God turned the heart of Sihon to resist Israel. It says that he hardened the heart of Sihon and made it obstinate 
stubborn, fixed, unyielding. What's going on here? See, what God is doing at this point is God is ratifying or solidifying, crystallizing a position or a decision that Sihon had already made. The Bible teaches us that God gives us the capacity and the privilege of choosing our opinions and our positions on things. He doesn't make us think a certain way or decide a certain thing. He gives us the freedom to make those decisions and those choices for ourselves. However, though the Bible teaches that you and I have the will, the freedom to make those decisions, the Bible also warns us that at a certain point, God will ratify those positions and those opinions, and we will become set in them in a way that is unchangeable. That's what's going on here with Sihon. He had already determined that he was against God and against the people of God, and that he wasn't going to give them passage through his land. And now God comes through and he reinforces the decision that Sihon made so that he won't now let the children of Israel pass through his land. The Bible tells us that when Moses brought the children of Israel out of Egypt, that seven times he went into Pharaoh. Seven times he spoke to the king of Egypt, and he said to him, Let my people go, saith the Lord. And seven times it tells us in the text that Pharaoh hardened his heart and would not let Israel go. But then Moses goes in seven more times after the first seven and says, let my people go. And the second seven times, the text is different. The language is this. It says, and God hardened Pharaoh's heart and would not let Israel go. God didn't take away the ability of Pharaoh or Sihon to choose, what he did is that he gave them the choice. He put a decision before their eyes, and then once they hardened their heart to a degree that God said, that's it. He ratified that decision and set them in their way. That's why the Bible says today is the day of salvation. That if today you hear the Lord calling you, and that could be to get saved, to give your life to Christ, or it could be for an issue that God is dealing with you in, in your life, that today is the day that you do business with God when he comes to you and when he speaks to you. Because he gives you the ability to choose, but he gives you the warning that at a certain point, your heart will become hardened to the thing that you're being spoken to about. And we see it happening here with us. So no, the Bible isn't teaching us here that God influenced Sihon and made him do something. But here is what the Bible is teaching us in this passage. And listen carefully. Is that many times, not always, but often, conflict in the life of God's people is a precursor to the blessing of God upon his people. Conflict, contention, battles can be God on the move, moving you into something that he's got for you, a blessing that he's prepared for you. See, three times they went to, to lands and said, hey, we're going to pass through. This is our way. We've been doing it this way for a long time now. We'll, we'll buy your food. We'll buy your money. We want to pass through. No problem. Now, there's a problem. They try to do things the way they always have. They go to the office 
this morning just like every other morning. They deal with that boss or that principal or that teacher the same way that they always have, but this time something's changed, something's different. There's contention. There's a battle. There's an issue. There's discomfort. And how many times in your life and in mine, when things like that happen, do we begin to think, oh, here we go. God, you're against me. God, you're, you're, you're closing doors. You're, you're shutting me out. You're judging me. This is because of that word I said to that person, isn't it? This is because of, you know, when we begin to think that way. Maybe not. It could well be that the issues, the contention, the conflicts, the problems that you're having in your life right now are purposefully designed by God to bring you to the next step, the next place, the next thing that he has for you. And so God is moving. He says in verse 31, And the Lord said unto me, Behold, I have begun to give Sihon and his land before thee. Begin to possess that thou may inherit his land. Then Sihon came out against us, he and all his people, to fight at Jahaz. And the Lord our God delivered him before us, and we smote him and his sons and all his people. And we took all his cities at that time and utterly destroyed the men and the women And the little ones of every city, we left none to remain. Now, some people come to this verse and they have a serious problem. They say, what kind of a God would sanction his people to murder women and innocent children? What is the deal here? How is it that this is happening what kind of god does this this is why pastor nick we didn't want to do deuteronomy and study joshua that's why because of things like this what's the story what's going on in the beginning when god put adam and eve in the garden it tells us that he put two trees there the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and there was one word that god gave to adam he said do not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Of all the trees you may freely eat, but of that one you may not. For in the day that you eat thereof, he said these words, you shall surely die. And when Eve and then Adam partook of that fruit, in so doing they brought the condition of sin upon themselves and upon every successive human life that would come after them in the world. Sin entered man that day when Adam and Eve partook of that fruit and it was passed upon all people. And God said that sin will kill you. It doesn't kill like a bullet instantly. Adam didn't die the very same moment that he partook of that fruit. Sin doesn't kill like a bullet. It kills like a cancer. It enters in. It's imperceptible. You don't even know it's there, but it's doing its work of corruption, its work of rotting, even moment by moment. It's corrupting. It's, it's moving. It's destroying. And if sin is left unchecked, sin will corrupt and destroy, whether it be a culture of society or whether it be an individual life. Sin will corrupt to the point where it is past the point of redemption. Now, there are two things that will stop sin from bringing a people or a person to that point. Number one is moral obedience. Moral obedience will slow down the sin-corrupting process. 
it won't stop it. It will slow it down for a season, but it will ultimately not work. The second, which is much greater, is the blood of Jesus Christ. The blood of Jesus Christ has power not just to stop sin and the effects of sin, but the blood of Christ applied upon a human life can actually reverse the effects of sin in a society or in a person. And that's why there's power in the blood. The life is in the blood, Leviticus chapter 17. It's a bloody thing. It's the power of the blood of Christ that redeems us from sin. But if sin is unchecked, it will, re- it will destroy and decay all the way to the point where there is no redemption, where nothing can happen. Now, listen, listen carefully. Only God has perfect knowledge and perfect vision to be able to see when that point is and at what point that happens. He's the only one that can make that determination. No man can can make it. Back in Genesis chapter 15, when God gave the promise to Abraham that he was going to give him the land, he said these words, Genesis 15, this is verse 13. It says that he said unto Abraham, Know of a surety that thy seed shall be a stranger in a land that is not theirs and shall serve them, and they shall afflict them 400 years. Speaking of Egypt, the descendants of Abraham went into Egypt. They were there for 400 years. And also that nation, whom they shall serve, will I judge. And afterward, they shall come out with great substance. God judged Egypt. He brought Israel through the Red Sea. Verse 15. And you, Abraham, shall go to thy fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. But notice verse 16. But in the fourth generation, they, your descendants, shall come hither again, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full. You notice that? That God, from the seat of sovereignty, speaking to Abraham about his future destiny, And the land that he will inherit, the land of promise, he says, look, I'm going to tuck your descendants away. I'm going to let your descendants feel the affliction of slavery for 400 years. Why? Because I'm going to be patient with the Amorites and give them space to repent. Their iniquity is not yet full. They haven't yet come to the place where they're so corrupted, so filthy that they cannot be redeemed. So I'm going to give them 400 years, Abraham, to repent. But yet, God also knew at the same time that they wouldn't repent. But he still didn't violate giving them the opportunity. And so for 400 years, the Canaanite cultures, the Amorites... The Hittites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, the Parasites, all the sites continued in their sinful transgression to the point where God now looks at these people and he says they are so thoroughly corrupted that there is nothing. They are a rabid dog upon the stage of humanity and they cannot be healed. They can only infect. And so God makes the decision at that point, go in and don't leave anything alive. It's interesting, a few hundred years later, there would be another society, the Ninevites, that would be at this point. But God, being just and seeing all things, knew that there was hope for Nineveh. So he sent Jonah in, even against Jonah's will. No, Jonah didn't want to go. He knew how bad the Ninevites were. But 
They went in, or Jonah went in, he preached, they repented, and God forestalled. He didn't judge as it was in his mind to do. God is faithful and God is fair, and he only sees all things and has the sovereign power to remove a people from the earth and to use Israel as his arm of judgment as he did in the text that's before us. In Revelation chapter 19, when all things are, are completed, when the tribulation is over, when we're in heaven, when the multitude of those that are saved are there around the throne, when the angels are gathered, and, and we're beholding the Lord at the end of all things, Revelation chapter 19, verses 1 and 2 says that the multitude of voices that are there around the throne speak, and they say these words, True and righteous are your judgments, O God. After seeing the scope of all of human history from beginning to end. After watching the judgment of God being poured out upon a Christ-rejecting world during the tribulation. Those that are before the throne, they see every decision that God made clearly. They know everyone who is saved and everyone who is lost. And the only thing that they can say as they, cons- as they consider the judgment that God has handed out from beginning to end is that your judgments are perfectly fair. He is perfectly fair. And so God says, wipe them out. And so, verse 35, only the cattle we took for a prey unto ourselves. And the spoil of the cities which we took. From Arior, which is by the brink of the river Arnon, and from the city that is by the river, even unto Gilead. There was not one city too strong for us. The Lord our God delivered all unto us. Only unto the land of the children of Ammon thou camest not, nor unto any place of the river Jabbok, nor unto the cities in the mountains, nor unto whatsoever the Lord our God forbade us. And so chapter 2 recounts for us the taking of the territory of Sihon, the king of Heshbon. And now as we cross into chapter 3, they take the territory of Og, I love that name. If any of you are with child, I'm thinking about that for, uh, you know, if we have a boy, Og. That's a great name, isn't it? (laughs) It says, then we turned and went up the way to Bashan. And if you could see the map uh, that was up there at the beginning, Bashan is at the very far north on the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee there. It says, and Og, the king of Bashan, came out against us. He and all his people to battle at Edrei. And the Lord said unto me, Fear him not, for I will deliver him and all his people and his land into thy hand. And thou shalt do unto him as thou didst unto Sihon, king of the Amorites, which dwelt at Heshbon. So the Lord our God delivered into our hands Og also, the king of Bashan, and all his people. And we smote him until there was none left of him remaining. And we took all his cities at that time. There was not a city which we took not from them. Sixty cities, all the region of Argob, the kingdom of Og in Bashan. All these cities were fenced with high walls, gates and bars, beside unwalled towns and a great many. And we utterly destroyed them as we did unto Sihon, king of Heshbon utterly destroying the men, women, and children of every city. But all the cattle and the spoil of the cities we took for a prey to ourselves. 
And we took at that time out of the hand of the two kings of the Amorites the land that was on this side Jordan from the river of Arnon unto Mount Hermon, which Hermon, the Sidonians, call Syrian, and the Amorites call Shenir. All the cities of the plain and all Gilead and Edrai, cities of the kingdom of Og in Bashan. For only Og, king of Bashan, remained of the remnant of the giants. Now, you recall in chapter 2, he talked about the Avims and the Emims and the Kaphtarims and the Zamzumims, you know, and all. And he says, but now, at this point, only Og is left of the remnant of the giants. And then it tells us how big he was. It says, behold, his bedstead, we don't know if that was his bed or whether it was his coffin, you know. But it says his bedstead was a bedstead of iron. Is it not in Rabath of the children of Ammon? Nine cubits was the length thereof. That's 13 feet. That's big. All the commentators said a king-sized bed. And I said, I'm not saying that. (laughs) And four cubits, the breadth of it, that's six feet after the cubit of a man, which was roughly 18 inches. So you can do the math. 13 feet long by 6 feet wide. He was a big man, you know. And I don't think you would want to have problems with him uh, in a fist, hand-to-hand combat type of situation, you know. But God dispossessed Og and the 60 cities that were under his authority, and he gave them into the hand of the children of Israel. And, you know, I love the simplicity and the brevity with which God recounts the story. Hey, I'm giving you the land. No one will be able to stand before you. And so God says, go take it. And then one verse later, it's theirs. And it's that simple sometimes, the way God will lead, the way he will dispossess giants in the lives of his people. Well, he goes on in verses 12 through 17 to talk about the land that they took. They took land on the east side of the Jordan, the land of Heshbon and the land of Bashan, Sihon and Og's former territory. So he talks about how that land was divvied up. Verse 12, it says, In this land which we possessed at that time from Arior, which is by the river Arnon, and half Mount Gilead and the cities thereof, gave I unto the Reubenites. Reuben was one of the sons of Jacob. And to the Gadites, another one of the tribes, the sons of Jacob. And the rest of Gilead and all Bashan, being the kingdom of Og, gave I unto the half-tribe of Manasseh, another son of Abraham. All the region of Argob with all Bashan, which was called the land of giants. Jair, the son of Manasseh, took all the country of Argob unto the coast of Geshurai and Maachtanai, and called them after, you could say, God bless you. <laughs> you know, and called them after his own name, Bashan Havath Jer, unto this day. And I gave Gilead unto Machir, and unto the Reubenites, and unto the Gadites. I gave from Gilead, even unto the river Arnon, half the river Jabbok, which is the border of the children of Ammon, so in the south. The plain also, and Jordan, and the coast thereof, from Chinnereth, even unto the sea of the plain, even the salt sea, under Ashdoth, Pisgah, eastward. 
And so there's another uh, image that will go up on the screen that, that kind of highlights in color these lands. And if you look at the, the lands that are on the eastern side of the Jordan River there, you see that uh, part of it was given to Reuben, another part was given to Gad, and then I believe it's the northern part there that was given to half the tribe of Manasseh. And, and you say, well, why is it that th- these people inherited these lands why did god give this to reuben gad and to to half of manasseh and the answer very simply is because they asked for it and when you read numbers chapter 32 it tells us there that when they came into these lands those tribes who were predominantly shepherds they had much cattle they saw that it was good grazing land and they said hey moses we want this land we know that we're we're supposed to go over jordan but but we like this area and we want to take it And, and so they asked for it But Moses gave them a warning. He said this. He said, what you're doing by asking me for this land is that you are settling for second best. God wants to give you the good land that's on the other side of the Jordan River. This isn't the place. First of all, you're asking for, you're settling. You're not getting the best. You're getting the second best. But second of all, Moses said, you're also setting a bad example for the people. In that you're compromising you're taking less than what God has for you, you're setting a precedent right at the beginning of our destiny that's going to be a negative influence on the rest of the nation. They're going to want to go halfway. They might become fearful because of the battle. They might say, oh, we want to stay here too. You're in a dangerous place, what you're asking me. But they said, no, we want this land. And so Moses says, listen, under one condition, if you send your men in with the rest of us to fight, then you can have this land. And so they say, sure thing, we will. We'll send the men in, but we want to come back after the fact, and we want to settle here. And so Moses granted, and he gave the land to these tribes. Now, it turned out to be a raw deal. They got the short end of the stick by their own choice. These tribes, these people that stayed on that side, were the first of all of the people of God to turn to idolatry. It became too much of a travel burden for them to go to Jerusalem several times in the year for the feasts and the appointed uh, holy times. And so they established their own centers of worship that ultimately turned towards idolatry. And they were the first of the Israelites to turn away from the Lord. They were also the first of the Israelites to be carried away into captivity. When the Babylonians would come in hundreds of years later because of the sin of Israel and take them away, it was these, because they were closest to Babylon, that were taken into Babylon first. So the first to turn away, the first to be carried into judgment. The lesson for you and I is this. Be careful what you pray for. Be careful what you ask for. I have learned that in my most desperate times, I offer my most desperate prayers. But in offering my most desperate prayers, I have learned that the way to pray in a desperate situation is not my will, but your will be done. Oftentimes, I found myself in in situations where there was problems, there was pain, there was difficulty, there was issues. But I found myself unable to pray specifically for a specific solution. And I would say, Lord, I don't know what's best, but do what's best. Do what's best in this situation. And that's the way to pray. If God 
had answered all of my prayers from the time I got saved until this day in the specific way in which I'd offered them, I know I wouldn't have it the way I have it today. Be careful what you ask for. Thy will be done. He does the best thing in the best way at the best time for the best outcome in our lives. And the safest place for you and me to be is to be, Lord, do your will. Have your way within my life. And so he says, okay, but, verse 18, I commanded you at that time, saying, the Lord your God hath given you this land to possess it. You shall pass over armed before your brethren, the children of Israel, all that are meet for the war. But your wives and your little ones and your cattle, for I know that you have much cattle, shall abide in your cities, which I have given you, until the Lord have given rest unto your brethren as well as unto you, and until they also possess the land which the Lord your God hath given them beyond Jordan, and then shall you return every man unto his possession which I have given you. It's important to God that those of us that have been established in our faith and in our life that we don't begin to just rest in what God has done for us and allow everybody else to just kind of fend for themselves. God sends those that were given a portion to go and help those that were still behind, that hadn't yet inherited theirs. It's an interesting thing that happens to Christians. I've observed it over the years. Is that someone will get saved and they'll be very excited about the Lord and they'll come to church. Every Bible study, they'll sit in the front row with pen and pad in hand. They're at every prayer meeting. They're fervently with zeal seeking after the Lord. But over time, as they become established in the faith and God begins to bless their life, you watch them move from the front row to the middle of the church and then slowly to the back of the church. And then, you know, you see them every other week and then once a month and then once in a while and then very infrequently, they become C&E Christians, you know, Christmas and Easter, you know. And, and that can kind of happen. And, and, you know, you can ask them. You could say, well, what happened? Well, what, how, how come now, you, you know, you used to be engaged. You used to be in the front, and now you're gone. What happened? Well, they'll say, I just don't get that much out of it anymore. It, it used to be so rich. You know, I, every, every study was like liquid waves of anointing that were coming over me and you know, something changed, you know, that it's a, you know, no, no, here's what happens is that it's not about you anymore. You're established in your faith. God is building you. Maybe he's blessed you. He's answered those prayers that you had. The thing is that now take the opportunity to strengthen someone else. Go and help someone else get established in their faith. Go encourage someone. Go lift up someone else's, you know, hands or, or, or something, but don't just stand there in you know heshbon or in the the land that's been given to you but go and serve help your brothers and so verse 21 as we close the chapter it says and i commanded joshua at that time thine eyes have seen all that the lord your god hath done unto these two kings so shall the lord do unto all the kingdoms whither thou passeth you shall not fear them for the lord your god he shall fight for you And I besought the Lord at that time. So Moses kind of lifts off the veil of his heart and he shares one of his deepest longings, his most passionate prayers. He says, verse 24, O Lord God, thou hast begun to show thy servant thy greatness 
and thy mighty hand. For what God is there in heaven or in earth that can do according to thy works and according to thy might? I pray thee, let me go over and see the good land that is beyond the Jordan, that goodly mountain and Lebanon. Isn't he so much like a child? He butters up God first. Who is like unto you? There is none so mighty and so great as thou art. And we have seen the things that you have done. And then he, then now that he's buttered him up, he offers his petition. He says, Lord, please let me go see the land, the good mountain. But the Lord was wroth with me for your sakes and would not hear me. And the Lord said unto me, let it suffice thee. Speak no more unto me of this matter. Now, if you recall the story, God had spoken to Moses when the people were thirsty. And he said, go up on the rock before the eyes of all the people. And he says, and I will stand before the rock. And he said, smite the rock with your rod and I will give water to the people. And so Moses did as the Lord commanded, and Moses smote the rock. And it's a great picture of Christ being smitten. He was standing before the rock. So in order for Moses to smite the rock, he would smite Christ, Christ being smitten for the sake of water being released to the people. And and, and then it happened several years later that the people complained again that the Lord hated them because there was no water. And the Lord spoke to Moses and gave him very clear instruction. He said, now Moses... Go and speak to the rock. And Moses went up on the rock, but his temper was flaring. His agitation was great because the people were murmuring again against the Lord. And so in his anger, he took his rod and he smote the rock. He struck the rock the second time. And he disobeyed the Lord. And God was faithful to the people. Water gushed forth from the rock as it had in the past. But God said, Moses, come here. Come into the woodshed. Let's talk. God said, Moses, you disobeyed. I told you to speak to the rock. And you misrepresented me before the people. You made them think that I was angry. I wasn't angry with them. I was smitten for them the first time. And I am only smitten once. And you ruined the picture that I was painting Moses. So you will not go into the land. What? Lord, this is my life's ambition. This is everything that I've lived for is to go into that land. You raised me up to bring the people out of Egypt and now you're telling me I can't bring them into Canaan? Yes, Moses. See, God, very interested in us understanding his way. Moses represents the law. His name is synonymous with the law. As you go throughout the Bible, they call Moses the law, and they call the law Moses. The two are one. Moses is the law. And here's the picture. Is that because Moses failed in one point, he was not able to bring the people into their destiny, the promised land. The law can never bring you and me into our inheritance. 
The law can never bring you your obedience, your zeal, your careful attention to do everything that God says for you to do can never produce for you one iota of blessing in the economy of God's grace. If you fail in one point, you've blown the whole thing and you can no longer do it. Moses, you cannot bring my people in. Who then, Lord? Joshua. The Hebrew name, Joshua, it's Yahshua in the Hebrew. In the Greek, it's Jesus. You can't bring them in, Moses. The law can't bring my people into blessing, but Jesus can. Jesus will bring you into the land of promise, the land of blessing. But to Moses, verse 27, he says, Get thee up into the mount, or the top of Mount Pisgah and lift up thine eyes westward and northward and southward and eastward and behold it with your eyes, for you shall not go over this Jordan. But charge Joshua and encourage him and strengthen him, for he shall go over before this people and he shall cause them to inherit the land which thou shalt see. And so we abode in the valley over against Beth Peor. You will see it, Moses, but you can't go in. Hey, by the way, God snuck Moses in. Because when you read Matthew chapter 17 and you see on the Mount of Transfiguration who appeared with Jesus in the promised land, Moses and Elijah, God got them in. Sometimes we think that God says no when we pray. Sometimes God says wait. It's a great chapter. It's a great story. You know, as, as I was preparing this study as we close, and I was thinking about my own life, and I was kind of applying, you know, the, 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 the narrative here in the context of my own experience and, and the, the giants that I've faced, the things that I've gone through and the battles and the fights that I've had to, to fight in my Christian experience. I remembered that early on in my, in my walk, there were two giants. There were these two giants that, that before coming to Christ, I always knew existed within my life, and yet I never had any power to do anything about it. And the moment I came to Christ, it was almost like those giants just died all by themselves. I remember the, 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 the giant of, of alcohol and drugs. I gave my life to Christ, and it was, it was almost like no battle at all. Those things just fell. They, were just, they, they didn't matter anymore. It was just gone. The, the desire for it, the, the need for those things, gone. The other one was a foul mouth. I had a very foul mouth prior to coming to Christ. And that was another thing, that as soon as I got saved, it was just gone. I can literally, it's been 15 or so years, and I can literally count on one hand the slips it, you know, and I don't say that boastfully. I'm not trying to, uh, you, you know, like say, oh, you know, or anything. I, I think you understand, you know. But, but those things were just like, it was like no effort, no energy. But yet, you know, I, I sat there after watching Sihon and Og, you know, those two first giants fall in my life. And I remember being like, wow, this is pretty good. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm a good Christian. I, I don't drink. I don't smoke pot anymore. And I don't curse. I'm doing great, you know. And I was good there. Wow, I can't believe how late it is. Sorry. Um, just saw the clock. Sihon, you know. And, and I remember I could see across the Jordan that there was this whole kingdom of land that I had yet to taste and see. I could see off in the distance that there was this beautiful mountain. It was the mountain of productivity. 
being just having a productive life. And I could see that that was something that God gave. But, but, but at the same time, I could see that mountain there in the distance. I could see that there was a giant that lived on that mountain. The giant, his, his name was Lazy. And the giant of lazy, he he dictated what took place there. And and I knew that if I was going to go take that land, that I was going to have to do battle with that giant. You see, I was dwelling in in the lazy land, you know. I'm not cursing. I'm not smoking pot. I'm not drinking. I'm doing good. But I could see that that's a good land, and I wanted to take it. There was another land. I looked off a little bit more to the north, and I could see that there was the pleasant springs of health and energy. And I looked at myself, and I said, I'm in the land of milk and donuts. But I could see that there was a giant there, the giant of gluttony. And I knew that that giant would have to go, that if I was going to have health and energy, that I was going to have to do something about the giant of gluttony that was sitting over there, that I had no power, no ability to dispossess. And then I I looked a a little bit more over, you know, this way, and I I saw that there was this whole fruitful land, this fruitful land of, of love, this sincere love, real love, un unfeigned, not fake, not outward, not with words, but real love, Calvary's love, agape love. But there was a giant on it, the giant of lust. And I knew that if I was going to experience the pleasantness of that land, that somehow I was going to have to conquer the giant of lust. It was going to have to go. There was going to have to be a battle. And and, and listen, I don't want you to think I'm holier, that I've taken, there is territory all over the place that I have yet to tread my feet upon and dispossess giants of. But what I observed is that God is able to dispossess giants. See, I was afraid to fight those giants, and here's why. Because I had tried to fight those giants prior to coming to Christ, and I never had the ability to conquer even the least of them. Even a little bit, I couldn't do it. And so my fear was that, well, what if I go now even though I've got Christ and I can't do it, then what happens? And so there was a fear in my life. But what I've learned is that there's no giant that God can't dispossess. And here's how it happened. It didn't happen by itself. Here's what happened, is that God would show me, first of all, the land. He would say, hey, there's a whole area of life that you're not living right here. And then he would put a desire in me to want that land. And then he would show me the giant that was living in that land in the place of what I wanted, what he wanted to give. And then he would wait. He would wait for me to be willing to fight. But as soon as I was, as soon as I would say, all right, Lord, I am no longer going to keep three half gallons of ice cream in the freezer. And I'm no longer going to put half a container of Maria's blue cheese on my pizza. <laughs> and, and I'm, no, and, and I'm going to fight, Lord, not in my own strength, but Lord, because you're showing me the land, because there's something you want to give me, because I feel so dead and so, you know, I feel old and I'm 24, Lord, what's going on, you know? And one by one, all of those areas, those things, undisciplined living, unproductivity, laziness, overeating, sinful things. I watched as those giants began to fall, not because of my might or my power, but because of his power and what he can do in a life. 
I'm so sorry for the time. This is a record. I, I'm going to beat myself up for a week. I hope you know that. You know, I'll be more upset about this than you are. And I will not do this again, but I'm not promising. <laughs> Worship team can come. What giant right now is possessing your blessing? What would the Holy Spirit of God shine upon in your life right now and say, there's territory. There's something that I want to give you. There's a whole vast land of milk and honey that I've availed, that I've purchased, that I've allotted, apportioned for you. Will you take it? Will you live in it? And will you stand and dispossess the giants, those things that stand in our way? And may God give us wisdom. The Bible says that we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. Amen? Amen. Let's stand and pray. Father, so we thank you tonight for this word. And we ask you, Lord, that you would seal it upon our hearts. That you would make us to hear your voice as you would speak your love over our lives. And that you would cause us to inherit all that you have for us. And so give us your mercies. Give us your will. Give us your Holy Spirit. And help us, Lord, to apply these things as we walk with you. In Jesus' name, amen.